Thank you for tuning in to this episode of August 69. Scott Michaels is the owner of LA's Dearly Departed Tours, the writer and host of the popular documentary Six Degrees of Helter Skelter, and a technical consultant on Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. In this exclusive interview, Michaels discusses the people and the locations that continue to reflect the Helter Skelter saga in the Los Angeles of today. Doing what I do for as many years that I've done it, uh, I've run into several people that uh, sort of surprised me. There were, uh, you know, there's a lot of people that live here that, you know, I went horse riding, I went horseback riding on the ranch. I remember George. I remember seeing the hippies hanging out. You know, everyone's got one of those stories here. It's almost like a stock story. It's almost like the, you know, the fictitious party at the Tate House that night with, uh, you know, I could name about 20 people that claimed they should have been there that night, but they got called away for some reason. It's it's sort of become a, a running joke with me because I, I just collect those stories, and I have documents and clips from books uh, filled with all those. But but in, in reality, because of the, the Six Degrees of Helter Skelter, uh, the documentary we did, um, I was, you know, people have gotten in touch and said my mother, my father, et cetera, but a couple of the really curious ones was Virginia Graham, who was in prison with Susan Atkins, and, and it was between Virginia Graham and another prisoner uh, named Ronnie Howard that uh, the two of them together, at the, uh, at, from different places, went to the authorities at the same time and sort of broke the case. See, Virginia's got a great story. She she was uh, she was a uh, she wrote a book and it's I, I would highly recommend it's called uh, Manson Sinatra and Me, and can, it was uh, the story of a party girl in L.A. and and she hung out with the likes of Sinatra, etc. And uh, and she was in prison for parole violation. She she'd been around the block. I mean, she's a very classy lady, but she's she's got a, a a little bit of a history, and not in a horrible thievery kind of way. But she was uh, she was part of a lot of parties, et cetera. So um, Virginia was in prison at that point for uh, parole violation for for floating a bad check, and uh, and Susan Atkins was brought in, and she said, "Here's this here's this." little girl, this little baby-faced girl, who's all of, what, 19 or 20, you know, doing cartwheels in the middle of this little dormitory that we're in. And she kept talking about, uh, you know, the murders and this groovy guy named Charlie. And Virginia's a smart lady, and she's like, girl, you better keep your mouth shut because she figured she was full of it. You know, you're going to get nothing but trouble by mouthing off like that. And, uh, and she continued and continued, and uh, finally Virginia got fed up and said, okay, describe the house to me. Now, Virginia had looked at the house. She had been to the house before when she was looking for a place to rent. So she knew what the inside of the house looked like, weirdly enough. And uh, Susan Atkins said, well, when you walk in the front door, there were these beams. And Virginia said, as soon as she said beams, I knew she was telling the truth. But I'm not going to be the one, because snitches get stitches. You know, she didn't say that, but, but she's basically, you know, a smart person in prison keeps their mouth shut. So she told Ronnie Howard, another prisoner who happened to be married to Virginia's uh, ex-husband, and, uh, and said, you know, you might want to pal up to this chick because maybe you'll make some reward money if, there's, if, this is, if this is legit. So ultimately Virginia was transferred to a different prison. And, uh, you know, the girls, the Manson girls, they would do anything to stay relevant. They would do anything to stay in the news because they wanted to bring attention to the way Charlie was being mistreated. So uh, they, were, they were crawling on their hands and knees for the news crews across Sunset Boulevard, and they were, they were just doing anything. They were breastfeeding each other's babies. 
uh, in front of the courthouse, even though somebody didn't have babies, and you know, knitting a vest out of their own hair. It was a freak show, and uh, and uh, they started sending out a uh, a, a hit list. You know, I'm going to kill Tom Jones. Susan Atkins says we're going to have sex, and as soon as he's about to climax, I'm going to shoot him in the head. And they were going to they were going to uh, they were going to kill Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton and pop out her eyeballs and cut off his dick and send him all to Eddie Fisher. I mean, now we laugh about it, but back then it was scary. And they said they were going to hang Frank Sinatra upside down and, and skin him alive and make purses out of his skin. And Virginia who was transferred to another prison at that point, said, now I have to say something because Sinatra's my buddy. So Virginia, at the same time as Ronnie Howard from different prisons, went to the authorities, and they're the ones that broke the case. But Virginia kind of sat in the back, and Ronnie Howard kind of stood up and did the, uh, you know, did the talk shows, et cetera, after the murder. So Yeah, and, and she does have a fascinating story. And there's also, you, you did an on-camera interview with her that's up on your YouTube page as well, I believe. Yeah, it's ninety minutes. I mean, she's it's uncensored, so she would she was very kind. I mean, she's a she's a really classy lady. She's in her you know in her mid eighties, and she's you know dresses beautifully every day, and she's so soft spoken and well spoken and just kind, and uh, and and so she was so generous to let me do that, and I, and there was nothing that wasn't touched upon in the book that I couldn't ask her about and, and other things too. So yeah, that interview in, in its entirety, I think is pretty, pretty interesting, uh, uh, look into her life. And then through the other yeah. avenues, you know, the gentleman, uh, uh, somebody who got in touch with us was her, his father had given Manson a moving violation. He's CHP, California Highway Patrol. And he gave Manson a moving violation the day before the murders. And originally when Manson was charged or arrested with the murder, sorry, not charged yet, but arrested, Manson claimed he was up north in Sacramento at that time. And it was this officer's citation that blew Manson's alibi. And the, the officer, mm. although his name is misspelled, I believe, in the book Helter Skelter, had never been asked before. And his citation was all needed so he wasn't brought into the uh, to the to the trial either but uh but you know just sort of people as you were saying sort of on the periphery that uh that have those little fascinating uh tidbits uh of information it just completes the story and gives it more of a human aspect instead of these these creatures in black and white photos that you see yeah and speaking of helter skelter uh have you heard a lot of uh, pushback uh, against that book and the theories it it, it Oh presents? sure, yeah. Helter Skelter is uh, Helter Skelter is the truth of the trial. That is exactly how the trial went down, and the end. Uh, Helter Skelter, you know, Mr. Bugliosi did what he needed to do to get Manson convicted. I don't know, in retrospect, 50 years later, or it's uh, what, about 49 or 48 years now for the, from the trial, but, uh, but I, I, in retrospect, I don't know if the uh, avenues he pursued would be permitted, but I do think that uh, he did what he had to do. One, one thing stands out is that one of the co-prosecutors was Stephen Kay. Stephen Kay went on a date with Sandra Good. That alone should have taken him off the case. For some reason... It wasn't, and I find that questionable. And I do think that the way Manson was treated might be considered by some people questionable. Is 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 Mr. Mr. Bugliosi's capacity in that trial was to get a conviction, and that's what he did. 
Yeah. But Helter sure Skelter, oh, that's, to... that's just nonsense. Helter Skelter is nonsense. You know, it, it, it may have existed on a small level. Manson was a blowhard. Manson would, you know, he had a captive audience that he kept captive. And, and he, he could spout off his grocery list and people would listen to him and take it by, as gospel. So, uh, but, but no, man, Helter Skelter is a bit, I think, I think most people realize that it's not really the, what was going on here. But it's not as interesting as revenge and drug deals. Uh, much, much more interesting to paint it as a horror movie. Well, do you think that, that kind of, uh, that far-fetched, those far-fetched theories that he presented in the book, do you think that's a, one of the big reasons why the story has survived over the past 50 years, kind of that fiction fable that he built around it? Certainly, certainly, because it, it, it is a horror movie. And, uh, you know, it had real movie stars in it and real rock stars in it. And a pregnant lady, a beautiful pregnant lady, uh, who happened to be married to one of the most successful directors of the time. So, yeah, uh, that, that alone, and, and adding into that, Rosemary's Baby, you know, Sharon did a movie called Eye of the Devil. They did The Fearless Vampire Killers. Anton LaVey, The Church of Satan, they were on the scene at the time. And, and, but the real thing to remember in all this is that we only got news twice a day back then, you know, and, and mm. a daily newspaper. So the imagination aspect of this was out of control because up until that night until that night you thought you were safe in your own bed and whatever the whatever the philosophy behind it was it doesn't matter because for four months no one was charged with that murder and everyone thought somebody was going to crawl in their windows and kill them while they slept and that scared the hell out of people i've heard that a lot uh from from people that uh you know it, it first of all the time period it was a time uh in our our country's history of such enormous change and a sense of revolution. And there was a sense in the culture already that things seem like they might be about to get bad, but they, they really did. The people that I've spoken to really have talked about, you know, that might've changed because everyone had kind of an open door policy until that night. <laughs> and then people for the well, first time... Well, I mean, everyone looks on it in retrospect like it was such a beautiful time. Nobody remembers syphilis. Nobody remembers people robbing you that when those doors were open. You know, hey, come on in. And nobody, you know, somebody went through my shit and stole my purse. You know, uh, the stinky, greasy hair. And, you know, nobody remembers all of that stuff. It's just all the rose-colored glasses and the beads and great music. And, and I prefer to focus on that, too. But, or I like to focus on that too. But, but it is literally rose-colored glasses. And uh, the '60s, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, they were, you know, there were other things that happened after this. Woodstock, something wonderful happened a week after the murders. Uh, so there were other things that were going to happen in the '60s after the murders. But up until that point, you thought you could, you, the hippies thought they could trust each other, I guess, and and it, and it wasn't the case anymore. And now the killers were these cute little faced kids who were sitting on the corner saying, "We're coming after you next," and carving shit into their heads. And yeah, so it changed innocence. But I think I think innocence went with Kennedy personally. But uh, but certainly Manson tied it up with a bow, and he was he was a very convenient boogeyman. There's even a, there's an interview with there's an interview with William Tennant. Uh, from this new book, Chaos, and, and the author even uh, even released an audio clip of, of the interview with William Tennant, and he talked about the innocence of the time and how it ended that night, and Bill Tennant said, 
no, we weren't that innocent. <laughs> it wasn't that yeah. innocent. Yeah, I, read, I listened to that, and I'm, an, I'm, a, I'm about halfway through that book right now. But, uh, but yeah, it, yeah, it wasn't all that wonderful. I mean, it was debauchery. You know, it wasn't crazy. I don't know. Maybe it was people hanging from the ceiling. I don't know. But there wasn't the judgment that we have now. And, uh, and also mm-hmm. AIDS wasn't an issue back then. You know, people overdosed probably, but the drugs were good. And, uh, you know, they weren't cut with, you know, speed. Cocaine wasn't cut with speed, and speed was good. And, you know, it, it just, all that has changed now with manufactured drugs, et cetera. So, um, so there was an element of debauchery back then. But uh, uh, it was fascinating is that the, the press turned on these victims after a while and, uh, you know, were making it seem like it was their own fault uh, because there was nothing else to report. So they were they were focusing on the fact that Roman and Sharon had a sex tape, or you know that there was some drugs found at the scene, and uh, and that was unfortunate because it was you know Jack Nicholson said it you know they that they had the uh, Sharon had the misfortune of being murdered twice the first time by her killers and the next time by the uh, by the media by the press so it's uh, it was yeah. unfortunate. You know, L.A. Um, <clears throat> is such a constantly evolving city. Uh, from from one year to the next, it's it's just changed changed so much. Uh, to, uh, to you know, and I know that a lot of us are very sad about that. But it, you do a helter skelter tour, and you stop by a lot of these uh, sites that that are uh, important to this saga. And I'm wondering what are what are the sites in particular where you can you can still get that tactile sense of that time and place. Well, it helps to be, we're in an enclosed vehicle, you know, so although I'm in traffic and I'm the one that's driving and I'm the one that's sort of uh, orchestrating this audio video, you know, experience, you know, you can kind of close your eyes for a moment when you're on the Sunset Strip and, and you open them and on the screen is a picture of, you know, the Hyatt Regency back when it was still the Continental Hyatt, uh, the, what is now the Comedy Store which was originally Ciro's, is was called its boss, you know, and I've got a great picture that, with the love and spoonful on the marquee, and you're actually listening to the love and spoonful, so you're kind of you know going to the whiskey and hearing, you know, hearing uh, you know people like the Doors and and uh, green tambourine and things like that, you know, incense and peppermint, strawberry alarm clock, you know, I love that, and it is the. Uh, going down the strip, you kind of get lost in that a little bit, and also the bits of trivia. You know, the the Ben Ben Frank's, uh, which was a restaurant where the, where a lot of people used to hang out, and uh, where you know, showing pop culture stuff where John Lennon would have breakfast, and that's where the that's where the Buffalo Springfield met for the first time in the parking lot. So so you're going to dip into the era a little bit, and um, when we go up to the La Bianca House, for instance, you know, I've assembled audio of the killers describing the crimes. So I'm not telling you what's happening. They are. And uh, it's in their own words. And, and you'll hear Leslie as we're standing in front of the house saying, you know, we went into the house, Tex went in first and came out, and, you know, I took Mrs. LaBianca into the bedroom, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, it's their, they're telling the story uh, with regards to the awful parts. And, uh, and, you know, when we'll go up to Cielo Drive, well, the house is long gone, but I've got photographs of the house from exactly where we are at that point, and there are the houses on that street that were there at the time. So you can kind of immerse yourself into it and at least see where things were. It would be perfect if everything was there still, you know, for me, but... Um 
you know, time has moved on, and unfortunately, people don't uh, have that sense of history like I do, and I don't have the money to preserve it. So, while we're going, you know, up the up Benedict Canyon, and I'm explaining what was happening in the car to them at that point, way how Krenwinkel and Atkins were changing their clothes in the car, and and you know, Krenwinkel was complaining about the handle on the knife, pinching her, et cetera. And by the time we finished with those stories, you know, we're we're at the street where the Webbers lived, and you could see where they grabbed the garden hose and went out to the middle of the street, and you know, so so it's all blow by blow, and uh, to where the you know the clothes were thrown off the cliff. And where the gun was thrown, and I interviewed fairly recently the, the young man who found the gun, and uh, mm-hmm. at, at his home or at his old home, and that was that was pretty fascinating. So uh, so yeah, you know, it's the story, and sometimes in their own words, and uh, and uh, I've assembled it the best I can. And we do touch on the pop culture aspect of it. Though. We do go into Laurel Canyon, and we do talk about you know the the wandering from house to house, and and uh, you know the John Phillips young girls coming to the canyon, and and Mama Cass's house, and, you know, just a half mile away from Mama Cass's is Wojtek Fikowski and Abigail Folger's house. And, and uh, Abigail Folger and Wojtek, you know, they're unfortunate victims. of Wojtek Fikowski had ran with unfortunate people and et cetera, et cetera. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I can, obviously I can go on for hours about this. But, uh, but so that's what I try to do. I try to let, them experience, let people experience it the best they can without actually traveling back in time. Right, and you do. I mean, you do such beautiful work. Uh, you're oh, you yeah. are the best, the best at what you do, Adam. And I both feel that way about you. And I got to tell you how influential you've been because you you started in this field uh, before everyone else kind of jumped on your bandwagon. Um, because uh, a few months ago, as you know, because we came to visit you, Adam and I were taking a trip to LA. And we one night we drove up to the Los Feliz murder house, and we saw a car pulling out of the driveway and and passing us very very slowly as we were approaching the house, and they were looking at us and we could hear them saying something in the car, and I was thinking oh that, those must be new owners or something I don't think they want people prying around this property, so before we get in trouble let's take off, so we drove from there to the La Bianca house because they're relatively close to one another. And uh, that same car was parked in front of the La Bianca house. <laughs> and they rolled they rolled down their window and they said, are you guys death hacks too? <laughs> so, you know, your influence is out there, man. That's it cool. Is. That's really cool to hear. <laughs> well, I yeah, mean, this, I the case ask, is so bizarre. Just when you think you got it figured out, you know, someone throws you for a loop. This chaos book is like, Whoa, you know, I, I, some yeah. of it I, I'm kind of hesitant to jump on the bandwagon with, but some of the things he brings up are are, are crazy. You know, the fact that, that that President Nixon commented on the trial was was just outrageous, and and nothing the president would uh, say isn't isn't contrived at that point. You know, back in the '60s, I mean, it's contrived. I should say they don't just speak off the off the cuff very often. And uh, and so Nixon to say, here's a guy who is obviously guilty, and it's like, whoa, you know, while the trial was going on, and he, and he almost threw the trial. And I find that fascinating, that what, what O'Neill, you know, brought up about the end of the 60s and the people protesting the war, and we all know there is money in war, and uh, and the fact that he was able to prolong it for a while by, by uh, uh, well, for what 
whatever reason. But the, his O'Neill's theory about you know Manson being a symbol of the counterculture and getting people to sort of reject young people who were the ones who were objecting to the war. That was a fascinating. It, it never made sense to me why Nixon did that, and somebody actually put that together. I found I found really interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really thought it was a fascinating book, and and just the fact that he has conversations with people like Terry Melcher makes it worth the read to me because he's been working mm-hmm. on it so long that he actually caught up to these people before they passed and mm-hmm. got them on record. Uh, it's is makes it invaluable to me that book. It it gets progressively loonier. As you go, I know. Along. Well, the fact that he's saying that Melcher was at Barker Ranch, I still can't. I still can't go on board with that one. Uh, you know, but Bulio—that was in Bulliosi's own handwriting, so I can't. I can't say it's O'Neill's fault because uh, I recognize Bulliosi's handwriting. But um, I don't know. Sometimes it just—it just here we are, fifty years later. My God, talking about it still and learning more information. Still arguing. About it. Arguing about every single detail and rethinking, you know, and the, what's fascinating to me is uh, the thought that Manson returned to the house. I mean, do you think that that's likely that he returned to the house that night after the murders? Personally, no way. I, I, I no. Manson was Manson was not a brave person. Manson was Manson was was not a brave person, and we know for a fact that at least a half a dozen people in Benedict Canyon called the police that night and, you know, reporting gunshots and screams. The lady next door heard the gunshots, though she didn't, she didn't you know, a parent was killed 50 yards or 30 yards or whatever it is outside her front door. So, so the odds of the, it could, be, it could have been that, uh, there could have been police up there in two seconds. So, no, I don't think Manson was going to drive the 45 minutes from Spawn Ranch and go back and manipulate the bodies. The only the only evidence of there being something strange is the, is the blood outside of the house that they say didn't belong to uh, that belonged to Sharon Tater J C Bright that is outside the front door. It's an odd I, I can't explain it either. But if their theory is to be believed, uh, Manson picked up Sharon Tate, not leaving a mm-hmm. single drop of blood between her and the front door, and putting her down, and then changing his mind and picking her back up without leaving a single drop of blood and putting her back. It, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, the way it's the way it's portrayed, uh, the you know the other option somebody said I heard recently is that Sharon was actually killed on the front porch. I don't I no I don't I don't believe any of that. Yeah. The police screwed up a lot. We know that. You know who's to say they didn't mislabel the blood? We know Wojciech Fukowski ran out the front door, so maybe the blood was mislabeled. They we know they lost the gun. We know they didn't find the clothes until December after Susan Atkins confessed to it, or, or her confession was published in the L.A. Times. Uh, we knew there was an eyewitness in Benedict Canyon that read it in the newspaper that said, hey, that sounds like me. You know, uh, so that was four months after the murders happened. So who's to say? But Manson was too much of a coward to go back. I, no way. I don't think so. I will argue that until the cows come home. No way. Well, yeah, it's a fascinating side investigation, uh, and it's covered in the Greg King book, too, who, who I, I know that you're familiar with. And I, I think that that's a beautiful book as well, just in terms of bringing Sharon back to life in a way. Um, but, uh, yeah, Greg know, was nice. Uh, Greg was a good guy. He kind of disappeared because if you make – for some reason, I came out relatively unscathed. But uh, but but people that, that, come, that put themselves forward as a – uh, what is it? I guess an expert would not be quite the word I'd want to use, but an authority on the case. 
uh, are attacked by all sides by people that claim yeah. they are. And uh, and there are five or four Manson groups out there, uh, and they all hate each other's guts and uh, <laughs> they go after each other, you know, online. And it's it's a very much a you know you may know a lot, but if you think you know more than me, I'm coming for you. So they're on attack. Right. I know I, you know I've got it on a light level. But, uh, but yeah, people are, people are nasty. The Internet has made the world an ugly place. On the next episode of August 69. Still kind of a culturally defining moment, I think. And I think that's why people are so, so intrigued by it. Journalist Tom O'Neill spent 20 years investigating the inconsistencies and lies behind Vincent Bugliosi's helter-skelter narrative. In our exclusive interview... He discusses the revelations contained in his new book, Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA, and the Secret History of the 60s, including the lengths taken by Bugliosi to achieve his convictions. The whole trial is called into question because it was fixed from the very, from before they were even identified as suspects. And the secret tapes that might lead the way to more victims. And we're sure that they still exist. Absolutely not. Tune in to the next episode of August 69. Visit moviegeeksunited.net for more details.